Hello and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads, Season 1, The Adam and Eve Story, The History of Cataclysms by Chan Thomas. Um, before we record this week's installment, um, I just want to uh, take a minute and update about the last podcast that I posted. It was supposed to be just one chapter, but it ended up being two. So chapter four and five are both in the last one. Um, that was the event in Genesis. And then this is chapter six, Cataclysms Revisited. I'm reading this book off of archive.org, the Internet Archive. I said it before and I'll say it again. There's uh, some errors in the copy. You'll know when I come across them. Um, it'll be obvious. And, um, and also want to point out that this chapter, The Cataclysms Revisited, is it's a longer one. It's a longer chapter. So get yourself settled in. A nice beverage if you prefer. And let's get started. Cataclysms Revisited The last cataclysm, known as Noah's Flood, is pretty easy to study. It was the start of the New Stone Age, brought about by conditions following the last inundation, when even basic requirements for living were no longer available. Since then, uniformitarian geology has been allowed by nature to continue on its path uninterrupted. Thousands of legends arose. Two cataclysms ago, roughly 10,500 years ago, which we now know to be Adam and Eve's flood, was the start of the Old Stone Age. You can find these last two Stone Ages in almost any junior high school general science textbooks. There again, the Stone Age was induced by the total lack of basic requirements for living. It's extremely difficult to find data from the era between the last two cataclysms, but it's there. Plus, of course, uniformitarian geology, geology pursued its normal path between cataclysms. Era history is all legendary. Three cataclysms ago, roughly 18,500 years ago, left little data for us. It is mentioned in Genesis 11.4. Shanidar Cave in Iraq gives us the best data of all. It's discussed in the text of this book on page 98. Four cataclysms ago, about 29,000 years ago, was the end of the Wisconsin era, and we find more data than we do for the third cataclysm ago. Five cataclysms ago, 43,800 years ago, was derived by Jess Hale, 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 Jess Hale, a super mathematician. It's a real search. Slowly, painstakingly, we are still putting the pieces of the puzzle together, the more pieces we find which fit into the picture, the more pieces are thrown on the table for us, and the more colorful and dramatic the picture becomes. Did you understand that there are three cataclysms recorded in the Bible? Noah's, Adam and Eve's, and the one before that. If you missed it, check Genesis 2. I wish we had the funds to go and dig and search for three years in Tiwanaku. A small idea of what could be found in this prehistoric city of South America can be gained by reading two books which I have mentioned before, but will again. The Calendar of Tiwanaku and The Great Idol of Tiwanaku 
both by tremendous researchers Hans Schindler Bellamy and Peter Allen. The conclusions drawn by Bellamy and Allen in those monumental works are startlingly close to mine. The city has lived through at least three epochs between cataclysms, the oldest ending about 11,500 years ago, terminating with a cataclysm, the period in its history, when it was at sea level, and starting a period of about 5,000 years during which it was at the bottom of the Pacific. Then an upheaval during the cataclysm of about 7,000 years ago, when it, along with its ocean beds, was raised to its present altitude of 12,500 feet. That cataclysm produced Noah's flood, gave birth to Niagara Falls, started the Ohio River flowing into the Mississippi, started the Neolithic Stone Age, raised the level of the oceans more than 200 feet all over the world, initiated the era of modern history all over our planet, such as that of Greece, India, and Egypt, and gave birth to the Epic of Gilgamesh, containing the story of Noah's Flood, written by a Sumerian thousands of years before the Hebrews wrote about it in Genesis. Each cataclysm is like a giant hand sweeping across the countryside, leaving its fingerprints for us to find amongst the elephant footprints of science in our search for the solution to this consuming mystery. These fingerprints are well hidden amongst the heavy footprints of uniformitarian evidence. The two disciplines, uniformitarian geology and cataclysmology, have no real contest between them. Each has its own place in science, for they complement each other. And actually, a marriage of the two schools is in order. Some of the cataclysmic fingerprints have been mentioned in Chapter 2. Let's discuss them in more detail. The story of the frozen mammoths is intriguing indeed. No frozen mammoth was ever found in ice. All were found in frozen homogeneous muck. It used to be that you could buy frozen mammoth steaks in Alaskan restaurants. The meat had been so well preserved by quick freezing in the muck that after the mammoths drowning and suffocating to death, that maintaining that frozen status for almost then maintaining that frozen status for almost 7,000 years. Perhaps the most noted of the thousands found thusly is the Beresovka mammoth, found near the Beresovka River in northern Siberia. Like all mammoths, found wherein some comment was made concerning the skull, it was noted that his skull was pink from hemorrhaging in the head, plus the fact that he had a penile erection, both of these facts being evidence sufficient to prove that he suffocated to death in the surrounding homogeneous muck. Further. He was frozen so fast and kept frozen for almost 7,000 years during which his erection was kept on frozen record constantly until he was found. The Beresovka mammoth was found about 1900, and more scientific data was gathered and recorded about this animal than any other such frozen behemoth. It's true that this beast also has initiated more scientific controversy than any other such find. To my way of thinking, one man's work stands far above all others. Ivan T. Sanderson, the biologist. He approached the problem from a frozen foods viewpoint and was the only one to do so. This is his story. When you freeze meat, the problem is to freeze it fast enough so the moisture contained in the meat does not have time to form into large crystals while freezing. The faster the freeze, the smaller the crystals. If you freeze meat too slowly, 
the moisture will form crystals large enough to destroy the fibrous structure of the meat. When defrosted, the meat will be nothing more than a mass of goo, unfit to cook or eat. The larger piece of meat to be frozen, the more difficult it is to freeze it fast enough to avoid formation of the destructive moisture crystals. For heat must be removed at the same rate from, say, half a steer as from half a pound of ground meat. It would be the same problem if you had to freeze a bucket or tub of water in the same time it takes to freeze a thimbleful. Now, a mammoth weighs up to five tons. Those mammoths found in Siberia were somewhat smaller, but still several ton animals. When the Beresovka mammoth was dissected by Russian scientists in 1901, they recorded that even the innermost lining of the beast's stomach had a perfectly preserved fibrous structure, indicating that his body heat had been removed by some super prodigious process in nature. Sanderson, taking special notice of this one point, took the problem to the American Frozen Foods Institute. What does it take to freeze an entire mammoth so that the moisture content of even the innermost parts of its body, even to the inner lining of a stomach, do not have time enough to form crystals large enough to destroy the meat's fibrous structure. The Institute really attacked this problem. To freeze a quarter or half a sear presented a big enough problem, but a whole mammoth? Some weeks later, the Institute went back to Sanderson with the answer, it's utterly impossible. With all of our scientific and engineering knowledge, there is absolutely no known way to remove the body heat from a carcass as big as a mammoth fast enough to freeze it without large moisture crystals forming in the meat. Furthermore, after exhausting the scientific and engineering techniques, they looked to nature and concluded that there is no known process in which could accomplish the feat. So many have loosely claimed that the Beresovka mammoth fell into a crevasse or fell in the ice or some such nonsense. There is absolutely, positively, irrevocably no explanation in the known process of nature to explain the quick freezing of the Beresovka mammoth concurrently with the muck in which he was suffocated and drowned. The Institute did tell Sanderson what it takes to do the job, however. First of all, the body temperature of the mammoth must be lowered about 140 degrees Fahrenheit or 78 degrees centigrade from its normal temperature and it must be accomplished in an absolute outside time limit of approximately 4 hours. Actually they concluded the freezing process had to take place in a elapsed time of closer to 2 hours. The institute did not take into account the effect of the on their conclusions which two other factors would have made. First, the fact that the entire strata of muck was frozen concurrently with the mammoth. And second, the fact that his erection had been preserved by quick freezing. The second of these facts reduces her actual freezing time to far below two hours. All that two to four hours represents is the outer limit of time within which the freezing process had to have taken place for no large moisture crystallization to have formed deep in the meat. The second fact tells us that the freezing time, at least for the entire strata of muck in the outer parts of the mammoth, had to be less than one minute, or perhaps even more like half a minute. 
The whole process bespeaks, bespeaks of an inhuman, supernatural violence. One foreleg, some ribs, and its pelvis were fractured. Do you realize what it takes to break a mammoth's foreleg and his pelvic bone? He was buried in a sea of muck formed by supersonically moving water, gathering and homogenizing the muck, suffocated and drowned in the muck, and quick frozen in the muck in an utterly impossible sequence of events. But nonetheless, the process was performed, then kept frozen and preserved for almost 7,000 years. Thank goodness for the scientific and intellectual curiosity of the Russian Tsar, who assigned the scientific team the responsibility to form the expedition into the far outreaches of eastern Siberia and bring back a thorough scientific analysis of this newfound mammoth near the Beresovka River. Today that same mammoth is mounted in a museum in Moscow. I believe I am correct in stating that it was the first time such a large animal was ever mounted by a taxidermist, or a team of taxidermists. Where did the muck come from which buried the mammoth alive? This frozen mud can be found all over northern Siberia and Alaska. In Alaska, the frozen blanket ranges from 20 to 90 feet thick. Where we have been able to study this frozen tundra more closely, here in the United States, the evidence shows that the supernatural violence included supersonic winds, volcanic eruptions, swift inundation creating the muck, a sudden temperature change to far below sub-zero freezing, and a precipitous total environmental climatic change. The muck comes from the inundation waters moving so swiftly and in such fantastic quantities that the water picks up all kinds of earth, mixes and homogenizes it with the water, then lays it down in the muck layer. Vivid descriptions of this layer of frozen muck are given by Professor Frank C. Hibben in his book, The Lost Americans. One of the best places to study many layers of muck laid down by many succeeding cataclysms is in the walls of the Grand Canyon or in the Badlands of North Dakota. If you stand on the north rim of the Grand Canyon, pick one strata to follow and trace it with your eyes as far as you can see in all directions, including the spires jutting upward in the canyon. You will find that the strata, homogeneous from top to bottom, everywhere as it goes, laid down with uniform thickness and sharply demarcated from the layers above and below it. Furthermore, if you happen to pick a layer that contains gravel, rocks, and boulders interspersed through it, you will observe that ossified muck, gravel, rocks, and boulders are distributed throughout the layer quite evenly in all directions. There is absolutely only one way for each layer to have been laid down so evenly and so homogeneously, and that is all at once. All other hypotheses fall into oblivion in the light of the homogeneity factor. This conclusion of the suddenness of the deposit based on the homogeneity factor is strengthened further by the flatness, uniformity of thickness, the independent character of each layer, and the sharp demarcation between any two adjacent layers. Anyone in the earth moving business who looks at these, these strata with the suddenness of deposit of each layer in mind will immediately realize that there is absolutely no way to accomplish this feat through any known means of engineering, nor is there any known way in the ordinary process of nature to move that much earth, homogenize it, 
even with the rocks and boulders if necessary, and deposit it all at once over uncountable square miles of surface in one single, flat, homogeneous, even depth layer. The only way possible is for cubic miles upon cubic miles of water to move at speeds into the supersonic range over continents, picks up earth, dirt, rocks, and boulders in unbelievable quantities, mix it with the water into a watery mud, have every rock and boulder grind each other into ground, rounded off shapes as if they were pebbles, and finally, deposit it all at once over huge areas of land in an even flat layer of homogenized muck, rocks, and boulders, which later dries out, and through the ages sometimes ossifies, such as in continents frozen in polar zones. For many years, I have searched and hunted for evidence of what I call sloshing, a fast-moving muck water as it becomes trapped in a huge basin. In the late 1980s, I found a treasure trove of sloshing evidence in the part of Arizona and Utah known as Monument Valley. Never have I been so impressed with the beauty of nature as I was when I first, when first viewing the monument treasures of the valley. It's hard to believe that such beauty can come from the unimaginable violence of a cataclysm pounding on a landscape which would not exist were it not for the many cataclysms before the last one, each contributing its share toward the structure as we see it today, with thick layers upon other layers mixed with thinner layers after thinner ones, each with its own unique color and characteristics with sharp demarcations between all layers. There are also similar layers in Canyon de Chez, southeast of Monument Valley, a few miles. The thick layers, approximately 60 to 80 feet thick, provided the sloshing evidence, even though each of these thick layers showed definite evidence of having been deposited all at once, each layer with its own color and integral appearance, there was a diagonal sublayer, grain flow within each layer, tilted about 20 degrees off horizontal, with an adjacent sublayer tilted in the opposite direction above and below it. These tilted sublayers and comprising very thick layers were stacked upon each other in, in 15 sublayers, all the same thickness and each tilted in opposite directions from the layers adjacent to itself. This evidence then finally provided the proof that sloshing does occur in a cataclysm. As the rapid moving water muck sloshed back and forth across the valley, it deposited a little of itself with each slosh as it was moving so fast as to deposit the same amount of itself with each slosh, the total being so homogenized that each sublayer has the same characteristics as each and every one above and below it. Only the grain structure varies in slant with each sublayer. The structure is evident in miles upon miles of surrounding walls of the valley, as well as in the monuments therein. Before leaving Monument Valley, I'd like to tell you about one special place in the eastern part of the valley. Mexican Half. It's a small town sitting next to the San Joaquin River, with a short plateau on the other side of the river. On the other side of the plateau rises the most un unusual mountainside in the world, as many geologists have declared who have come to Mexican Half from all over the world to see that mountainside. It rises about 2,000 feet into the sky, with all of the grandeur of many sedimentary stratifications, large and small, in evidence. 
The unique feature of the whole mountainside is that the sedimentary layers all bend over down toward the river as if they were trying to flow into it and disappear. Thousands and thousands of feet of sedimentary strata are bent over toward and into the river in this fashion. This scene is one of the most dramatic I have ever seen, proving the superviolence that occurs during a cataclysm. In this case, a huge fissure open in the earth where the San Joaquin River flows now. The fissure being open enough to be as a huge jaw opening to its throat with the molten layer normally 60 miles beneath. Of course the molten layer would rise into the 60 mile throat being 60 miles below that of the seething white hot molten everything beneath. The 60 mile thick shell presses down while also providing a huge fissure for that pressure to push the molten stuff upward into the gapping throat fissure. Now we have the most awesome, horrific, appalling, formidable, terrifying, uncanny, ultimately violent, paroxysmic, cataclysmic collision of the forces of nature on the surface of our planet. Even beyond imagination until you see for yourself right a Mexican hat with the side of the mountain stop cold in the midst of its death throes. At this point, the supersonically rampaging oceans and wind hit the scene. So we have a super earthquake so huge as to open a fissure in the whole shell of the earth, opening a path for the molten layer below to be pressed upward into the fissure. The molten invader melting the hard layer beneath the side of the mountain. The 1,000 mile per hour ocean water slaughtering the mountainside and having lost its foundations, driving it down into the huge fissure and steaming the molten stuff below into solidity. And the mountainside stops feeding itself downward into the maw, while the oceans in their fury pass on, leaving a huge part of themselves sloshing around back and forth in the valley, plus some surviving beautiful picturesque monuments standing today for us to see. In other parts of the valley, upheavals of sedimentary strata and huge structures point upward, while the rock being scorched in a plethora of, with the rock being scorched in a plethora of places. Church rock and Agathla rain. Each has many scorched sedimentary boulders scattered around near its base. I have read the geologist reports and have been told by Wayne, one of the tour guides at the Monument Valley Lodge, one of the nicest places to stay, that he has read geologist reports all telling of lava flows in Monument Valley. I have spent time through several years in Monument Valley searching from one end to the other and even beyond the valley for any evidence of lava. I have never found any evidence anywhere of even a suggestion of lava. All I have ever could find was scorched sedimentary rock, which from a distance could have fooled anyone into thinking it was lava rock. I have seen dark scorched rock and abandoned gold mines near Pikes Peak, which scorching occurred during a cataclysm when the heat from the 60-mile molten layer broke through the fissures in the 60-mile thick, harder, outer shell of the earth, scorching the rocks in that shell. Going back to the oceans of the water, mixing with earth and rocks and laying down layers and sloshing sublayers of sediment, a good measure of the speed in which the water must move over the land is provided for us by the granite blocks on the eastern slopes of the Jura Mountains in France. 
Deluxe Jr., Von Buck, Deluxe Jr., and DeSauser give us much information through their early geological observations of the dispersion of the alpine granite blocks through the mountains, valleys, and lakes of Italy, Switzerland, and France. Even Bakewell, though through his early dissenting observations, lends more credence to the fast-moving water conclusions of the other men because of the looseness of his arguments. The great Swiss geologist Escher gave the most credence to the fast-moving water argument through his observations, which support the earliest concepts set forth by J. Andre de Luc Jr. in the 1820s. Let us envision the Jura Mountains as if we were looking down from an airplane. First of all, we notice that they are similar to the Allegheny Mountains of Pennsylvania, for they look like a giant wrinkled-up carpet with rolling ridges running from northeast to southwest. The Swiss-French border follows the same direction in the middle of the range. You can also see that the ridges have passes through them here and there, so that a person on the ground could see northwest through one ridge to the southeastern slope of the ridge of the next ridge in many places. It's a well-known fact that the Jura Mountains are non-granite. Whatever granite exists in those mountains is still buried deep in them. They are largely calcareous. Calcareous. However, on the southeastern slopes of the ridges, there are countless granite blocks sitting on the surface. These blocks, each weighing tons upon tons, have been traced to the Swiss Alps, across the Swiss Valley, to the southeast. If you take if you look several ridges to the northwest in the Juras, you will find the granite blocks only on the southeastern slope of the ridge and clustered only opposite passes through the ridge adjacent to the southeast. These blocks sit on the slope at an altitude the same as where they came from in the Alps of Italy and Switzerland, 50 to 80 miles across the valley from Switzerland to where they were deposited on the Juras. In order for them to be found on the southeastern slopes of the Juras where they are, a tremendous upheaval of granite in the Italian Swiss Alps had to occur during some cataclysmic violence, followed by water moving at such fantastic speeds as to sweep the muddy blocks of granite from 50 to 80 miles across Switzerland over the Juras, through the passes, and deposit them in clusters against the southeastern slopes of the inner ridges of the Juras. It, is perfectly, it fits perfectly with the picture of the supernatural violence uncovered by Professor Frank C. Hibbett in his studies of shredded and dismembered prehistoric animals in Alaska, buried in quick-frozen, in with muck, together with twisted, torn, burned, and quick-frozen trees. Hibbett states that one necessary force in the contributing factors is supersonic winds. The only way of generating such winds over tremendous areas is to move the land in such a way as to depart from its normal west-to-east daily rotation, so the atmosphere continuing in its normal daily rotation will then be moving at supersonic speeds relative to the land over which it is moving. Now, in the Earth's normal rotation, the oceans also rotate west to east one revolution per day. When a cataclysm occurs, the 60-mile-thick shell of the Earth slips in a direction differing from that of its normal rotation. 
The atmosphere continues its normal rotational direction, and the oceans also refuse to change the rotational direction. So the atmosphere and the oceans proceed to move over the land masses, which are passing underneath them in a new direction. Some of the oceans and air are moving at supersonic speeds with respect to the land moving in a different direction underneath. With the oceans moving over land masses at such speeds, it's easy to understand how the huge granite blocks were moved from the Alps to the Juras while losing little or no altitude, and how cubic miles of earth can be picked up, mixed with water, and homogenized, then laid down in an even flat, independent layer such that we find exposed in the walls of the Grand Canyon, Monument Valley, and Canyon de Chez. Further, we can understand how the irresistibly overwhelming, annihilating force of waters moving at utterly unbelievable speeds can, in the blink of an eye, obliterate entire civilizations and every vestige of anything they ever accomplished. Even in our times, there has been occasions where a simple dam's breaking and releasing its water over a small town below literally wiped out every splinter of evidence of that town and people having been there. One of the fingerprints which the cataclysmic giant hand leaves, telling us of the supernatural violence on the earth, is the plethora of mammalian teeth of many, many species found in the sharp demarcation boundaries between sedimentary layers, such as we see exposed in the Grand Canyon. It bespeaks of animal life being pulverized, with teeth the only mammalian substance hard enough to withstand the onslaught. Some places undergo less violent winds in inundation, to be sure, and there we find traces of prehistoric civilizations which had advanced to achievements we deem impossible for that many years ago. Let's go back to Tiwanaku in South America to see what's there. The Incans discovered this deserted city at 12,500 feet altitude on the shores of Lake Titicaca in the 2nd century AD. Although they lived in that land for generations upon generations, centuries after centuries, they left it totally undisturbed. Anyone who has been on a hunt for gold or treasure in the mountains, as I have been in New Mexico, knows the Indian credo, what is in the mountains belongs to the mountains. That means that whatever they find, they do not disturb, nor destroy, nor move, nor remove. You can read about it, see portrayed in movies, be told about it, and there is nothing like seeing it in person when gold fever takes over an entire personality. It's a kind of consummate greed which changes a veteran outdoorsman to a wild-eyed, scheming, secretive, intense introvert who could lead himself and others to destruction and death through his greed. I have seen it. Tiwanaku was found by Pizarro and his band of plunderers in the 1520s. The gold fever had evidently taken over his entire expedition of 13 to 16 men, for they proceeded to vandalize almost everything in sight. They smashed thousands of statues searching for gold. There were silver, huge silver bolts of up to several tons each passing through massive stone monoliths. You guessed it. They broke up the monoliths in order to obtain the silver bolts. There was one member of the early discoverers, a Spanish priest, Diego de Alcabazo, who wrote down what he saw. Quote, 
I saw a vast hall carved on its roof to represent thatch. There were the waters of a lake which washed the walls of a splendid court in the city of the dead, and standing in its fine court, in the shallows of the water, on the platform of the superb colonnade, were many fine statues of men and women. So real they were that they seemed to be alive. Some had goblets and upraised drinking cups. Others sat or reclined as in life. Some walked in the stream, flowing by the ancient walls. Women carved in stone dandled babies in their laps or bore them on their backs. In a thousand natural postures, people stood or reclined. Not one of these statues stands today. The greed of civilization has literally devastated Tiwanaku with vandalism and thievery. However, vandals through the centuries who visited this fabulous storehouse of prehistory did what most do who have the treasure fever. They ignored the intellectual values which were less obvious. The Great Stone Gate, the temple of the of Kalasaseya, has inscriptions across its arch and on its pillars, which, to the untrained eye, appear to be meaningless picture carvings. It remained for Arthur Poznanski to realize its importance. It was followed by he was followed by Wendell Bennett and John Phillips. And Hans Schindler, Bellamy, and Peter Allen completed the picture with their brilliant deciphering and translation of the pictures so aptly described in their book, The Calendar of Tiwanaku. Their later book, The Great Idol of Tiwanaku, invinces further their brilliance in deciphering and translating the picture symbols carved in a monolithic statue excavated from a buried temple. This book not only explains the deciphering and translating, but tells of the arduous work performed in order to preserve the tremendous monolith. The only thing they don't explain is why Ibis' huge statue has two left hands and no right hands. The works of Bellamy and Allen show many things concerning the calendar and time standards of Tiwanaku in two different epochs, probably the Caspian and Hudson Bay eras. The details and differences between hours, days, and years, then and now, I shall leave to those who wish to read those books. The main point of their discussion, which should be noted here, is that the idol and the calendar both recorded that, during both eras, a retrograde moon satellite orbited around the Earth. During the idol's era, probably 29,000 to 18,500 years ago, the satellite was approximately 24,150 24, miles from Earth. And during the Calendar's Gate era, probably 18,500 to 11,500 years ago, the satellite was approximately 23,360 miles from the Earth. Obviously, the Moon satellite was far closer to our planet than our present Moon. Obviously, it passed the Roche limit of approximately 8,000 miles from the Earth and disintegrated, accounting for many legends of prehistory of terrible impacts with the Earth by asteroids or comets. Where did the Moon satellite come from? How did our planet capture it? And of course, where did our present Moon satellite come from? When did our planet capture it? And how and why did it happen? If Tiwanaku and its moon satellite are to make any sense for us, these questions must be answered. The bold, tedious relationship may give us a key to the answer. 
The Bode-Tidius relationship may give us a key to the answer. Tidius and Bode were two German astronomers. Astronomers, individually, concurrently, discovered this relationship in the 18th century. If we take orbit numbers, or ring numbers, of the planets through Saturn, ring numbers being 0, 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, multiply each number by 3, add 4 to each result, divide each by 10, the series becomes 0.47, 1, 1 1.6, 2.8, 5.2, and 10. These numbers, accepting and skipping 2.8, represent the relative distance of the then-known planets from the Sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, 2.8, Jupiter, and Saturn, with 2.8 representing no known planet at that time for that distance. When the planet Uranus was discovered in 1781, it fit right into the series at 19.6. The law seemed strengthened and an intense search was initiated for anything that might be at the 2.8 distance. In 1801, the little planetoid Ceres was discovered at 2.8. By 1945, more than 1,500 more were found on the same orbit. It has been well established as a ring of minor planets or planetoids or asteroids. In 1846, the planet Neptune was discovered and it seemed to disobey the rules set down by the bode Titan relationship. It should have been at 38.8 on the relative distance scale, but it was closer to 29.2. In 1930, the planet Pluto was discovered, and the Bode-Titus law seemed to fall apart completely. Pluto was found closer to 38.8, where Neptune was supposed to be, whereas the law seemed to indicate that Pluto should be at 77.2. Since that time, the relationship commonly known as the Bode's Law has been regarded in astronomy as nothing more than an insignificant curiosity. Perhaps a new look at Bode's Law is in order. If so much of it is correct, then the part of it which appears to be erroneous seems to be so only because of our lack of understanding of the basics involved. First, instead of using relative numbers, we shall work with ring numbers or orbit numbers. The first progression, 0, 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, etc., represents these numbers. Also, instead of this progression, which is geometric except for the 0, let's fill in all of the numbers, making it a true arithmetic, arithmetic, arithmetic progression. We're going to read that again. First, instead of using relative numbers, we shall work with ring numbers, or orbit numbers. The first progression, 0, 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, etc., represents those numbers. Also, instead of this progression, which is geometric except for the 0, let's fill in all of the numbers, making a true arithmetic progression. The numbers will be 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and so on to 256. Now, in this progression, the ring numbers 0, 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, and 256 can be regarded as fundamental rings. 
all other rings can be re regarded as harmonic rings. Between any two fundamentals, the ring which lies halfway between is the first harmonic. Any ring which lays halfway between a fundamental and first harmonic is the second harmonic. Any ring halfway between a second harmonic and the first harmonic, or halfway between a second harmonic and a fundamental is the third harmonic, and so on. The next step is to label the ring numbers with the planets as they are actually positioned in the solar system. We can simplify the table if we take all of the rings, numbers up to eight, then only the fundamentals, first and second harmonics beyond that to Uranus, then the fundamentals, first, second, and third harmonics to ring 256. The first thing we notice is that all the planets are on fundamentals except Neptune. It's the only planet which is on a harmonic ring. It appears on the first harmonic, 96, between Uranus and Pluto, which are on fundamentals, 64 and 128, respectively. Now we come to another discovery. The number of rings between the planets increases the farther away from the Sun the planets are, until it appears that the maximum number of rings possible between planets is 31. On each 30-second ring, there has to be a planet, whether, a ring is, whether the ring is fundamental or harmonic. That's why Neptune is on the 96th ring, a first harmonic, the 32nd ring after Uranus, with Pluto on the 128th ring, a fundamental, the 32nd ring after Neptune. Something else appears apparent also. When the solar system was born, planets tried to be born on each ring. Full-blown planets were born on every fundamental and on any ring, 31 rings, away from any harmonic ring, 31 rings away from any other planet. On all other rings, minor planets were born, or a ring of planetoids. Since there are four major planets inside the ring of planetoids on eight, let's assume that the entire solar system is made up of three, ring, three groups of four major planets, plus a ring of planetoids in each group. This means that there may be two more undiscovered planetoid rings, 112 and 240. If we look at the minor planet rings on either side of Jupiter and apply Kepler's laws to them, we find that the moons of Jupiter even the retrograde ones, are explained as captured minor planets from both inside and outside harmonic rings around Jupiter. Before we examine the results of our construction, let's look into the outer regions of the solar system. Ring 256 is where the comets turn around and head back into the heart of the solar system. Further, it is not known that there is more than one planet outside <laughs> further it is known that there is more than one planet outside Pluto. Our table tells us that there should be three planets on rings 160, 192, and 224. The total number of rings tells us that there is a fantastic number of captured and uncaptured minor planets yet to be discovered, the junk of the solar system. Let's look at the abbreviated table of the solar system. The first orderly interpretation of Bode's Law Ring 256 appears to be where the sun's belt of protons is. The belt must exist since the sun's magnetic field is bipolar. 
Furthermore, it has to be outside the planets. And then on page 91, there's a chart where it lists the planets, the missing planetoids, and if they're fundamental first, second, or third harmonics. I recommend getting this book on archive.org and looking at it if you want to, um, so you can see it. But for now, that's how I'm going to just describe it, and I'll just continue to read the text. It's apparent that our present moon was created on ring three, Phobos on five, and Deimos on six. Ring seven is vacant. That presents a real challenge. Whatever happened to the minor planet on ring seven? The closeness of Phobos and Deimos to Mars tells us that rings four, five, and six close together a tremendous amount, most probably through a succession of events in the solar system causing a series, the series of cataclysms on Earth. It's logical that Ring 7 also would have closed towards Mars' ring so that Mars would have captured the minor planet from Ring 7, as well as Phobos and Deimos. Once orbiting around Mars, quote-unquote lost, could have come close enough to Earth to be stolen from Mars by Earth and be the moon satellite so well described on the idol and the calendar gate of Tiwanaku. Further, the closeness of that satellite to Earth would be justification for the premise that quote-unquote lost was stolen by Earth from Mars. <coughs> the multitudes of legends springing from the cataclysms of 11,500 years ago about quote Venus moving into orbit, end quote, or quote Venus changing her orbit, end quote, most probably describe the capture of our present moon from Ring 3, which in its day, eons ago, evidently was a pretty fair planet with radiation belts orbiting around the sun. In any case, the now vacant Ring 7, the records from Tiwanaku of a retrograde orbiting moon, the plethora of impact craters on the moon and Mars, and the mountains of dense material buried in the mantle of the Earth as uncovered by perturbed orbits in our man-made satellites, and Bode's Law, expanded here to include orbits of both fundamentals and harmonics, now offer an orderly meaning to us. Instabilities in the solar system, which led to the capture of minor planets by major planets, may seem impossible or improbable, However, if we consider one minor instability in the solar system, and the Earth's rotation, we can believe that major change instability are possible. You can find it in Encyclope Encyclopedia Britannica. Mention is made of two astronomical abrupt changes in the Earth's rotation within the last hundred years. This planet of ours is not an inertial body. It's a complex motor generator system as are the solar system, the Milky Way, galaxy, its parent supergalaxy, and the universe in which we live. Realize also that astronomers of Tiwanaku recorded stability changes on the calendar gate and the Great Idol. In light of the fantastic stonework in Tiwanaku, characterizing the civil civilization which ended abruptly about 11,500 years ago, we can look at other great prehistoric works in stone which stand as mysteries, mysterious monumental memorials to lost engineering techniques. There is Baalbek in Lebanon, formerly known as 
Heliopolis, where three huge stones are fitted together to make a platform 300 feet long. The meat to the largest stone still lies in the quarry southwest of town. That meat, believe it or not, weighs over 1,200 tons. What fantastic event would cause this prehistoric civilization to leave its tools figuratively hanging in midair? And prehistoric Sacsayhuaman, Peru, where a 20,000-ton monolithic block of stone lies with its steps upside down, overturned by some prehistoric supernatural wrath of nature, and there as immobile as the silent boom of the kettle drums of eternity in space stand walls of incredibly fitted huge stones. We hear so much about the stone statues of Easter Island. There is also a wall of gigantic precisely fitted stones suggestive of the same civilization as Sesquihumane in Baalbek. Giant stone statues are not exclusive to Easter Island. They can be found in the Tuamoto Archipelago on Nukahiva Pudahiva, Revive in Pitcairn, and in Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and Bolivia. Those statues on Easter Island, which were buried up to their necks and recently excavated, showed a geological environment, the significance of which eluded the excavators. The lessons learned from the Stratus in the Grand Canyon, Monument Valley, and Canyon de Chez teach us to look for homogeneity. And there it is in the dirt walls of the excavations around the gigantic statues. They were all buried at once in a colossal inundation. It appears to be the reason for the tools being figuratively left mid-air in the quarries of Easter Island, as well as those in Baalbek. Mother Nature performs her own works in stone which can serve as time clocks for us. Take Niagara Falls, for instance. When the falls first started, the river flowed over a cliff with the mouth of the gorge below the falls to today. There was no gorge. As the years went by, the water broke away the cliff bit by bit, year by year, century by century, to form the seven-mile-long gorge which reposes below the falls today. For the past 100 years, the breakaway of the Canadian Falls has averaged approximately 4.5 feet per year. When the falls were young, when the gorge's first two to three miles or so were being carved out by the river, the breakaway was faster since the falls were narrower, the depth of water passing over the cliff deeper, and the height of the cliffs greater. A reasonably early breakaway figure would be 6 to 6.1 feet per year, which would make the age of the falls and gorge below them about 7,000 years. The birth of both falls and gorge coinciding with the oceanographic data which tells us that the oceans all over the world took a sudden rise of over 200 feet and stayed risen, gradually lowering in height since then to their levels of today. St. Anthony Falls in the upper Mississippi River in Minnesota bears another telltale story in nature's series of recording time clocks. The gorge below those falls is eight miles long. Over the past century, the breakaway has averaged 5.5 feet per year. If we repeat the same reasoning processes that we used in analyzing the gorge below Niagara Falls, we come up with the same figure for the age of St. Anthony's Falls in 
and the gorge below them, approximately 7,000 years. These datings plus others, such as the eruption of lava around the Pyramid of Quinquilo in Mexico, lead us to the date of the last cataclysm, Noah's Flood, of somewhere around 7,000 years ago. Earlier datings, 11,500 years ago from the abrupt end of the Laurentian Basin ice cap in Canada and the ice cap in southwestern Australia, plus the same date for the jamming burial of countless animals, fish, mammals, birds, and humans in the Pajark Marsh in southeastern Australia, plus the same date for the abrupt end of the civilization in Tiwanaku by an inundation, plus scientific data from all over the world showing an abrupt worldwide climatic change at the same time, established 11,500 years ago as a close estimate for Adam and Eve's cataclysm, the one preceding Noah's flood. If we accept Tiwanakan dating, it was approximately 11,560 years ago. Isn't it interesting that the New Stone Age and the Old Stone Age dates coincide with the times of Noah's cataclysm and Adam and Eve's cataclysm? It is plain that each cataclysm leaves this planet with less than 1% of all life surviving. And those meager spots all over the world where some humans survive, what is left for them to live by and with? Who has even a shovel? Whatever clothes they have, how short a time those clothes will last. You can understand how each day, the entire day, total effort is spent in finding food, as in plant food, hunting and fishing just to survive. The fight for survival is extreme, as it is unimaginable. Most of those who survive cannot teach language, ethics, mathematics, history, government, or anything of what we regard as classical education. There are children, dad tells his kids all about the inundation, and they believe him because he is their dad. By the time there are, grand, there are grandchildren, they don't believe a word he says. Because, well, um, you know, he has to be a little off his rocker to tell stories like that. In a matter of a few generations, the cataclysm becomes a verbal legend because who has something to write with or on? And of those who survive, who has a language skills it takes to write it, even if he did have writing tools? Furthermore, who has time to write or teach anything with the top priority of each and every day of survival? <clears throat> Let's go back to dating. Meager data shows the cataclysm previous to Adam and Eve's to be about 18,500 years ago. The previous one, about 29,000 years ago, kind of thanks to the mathematician Jess Hale's structures of nature, the previous one computes at 43,750 years ago. Mathematically, its function is that of a helicoid. Of all the correlations of data, I regard one of the most striking to be that of the Shanidar Cave in Iraq. The Smithsonian Institution expedition, headed by Ralph S. Selecki in the Iraqi Directorate General of Antiquities, shared in this work. 
Carbon-14 dating shows the boundary between layers laid down by successive civilizations to be commiserate with the dates of cataclysms 7,000, 11,500, 18,500, and 29,000 years ago. Plus the incredible fact that no carbon-14 was deposited in the cave during the Caspian Sea North Polar era from 29,000 to 18,500 years ago. It is entirely logical, since the cave would have been so close to the North Pole as to be plausibly have been closed off by a polar ice cap. Consequently, no living matter could have entered the cave, and it takes living matter to absorb carbon-14 for us to find and date. The crude cave is as much a memorial to the last four cataclysms as Tiwanaku. Speaking of memorials, has anyone ever lived through a cataclysm and written of his experience leaving a personal memorial to the occasion? Of course. If we first look at Genesis, three cataclysms are mentioned there. Noah's inundation, the last one, 7,000 years ago. Adam and Eve's, 11,500 years ago. And the previous one of 18,500 years ago, barely mentioned in Genesis 2-4. Two other stories exist, and they are most intriguing. One is from Noah's time, and the other, in Adam and Eve's time, from Greece. In 1849, Austin Henry Laird started excavating the mound of Kuinjik on the banks of the Tigris River. It was there he discovered the fabulous city of Nineveh, previously known only through the Old Testament. He discovered the palace built by the bloody emperor Sennacherib. Assurbanipal, a grandson of Sennacherib, by one of his concubines, had added a library to the palace. He then sent emissaries out to comb his kingdom for original tablets worthy of being in his library and had the emissaries borrow the tablets and bring them to the palace. Azurbanipal had exact copies made of each one and returned the originals to their rightful owners. He had some 30,000 copies made on clay tablets and put them all in his library. Those were the tablets which Laird found. Among the tablets were 12 comprising Among the tablets were twelve comprising the Epic of Gilgamesh, a man who was, at the time, a legendary king of the first dynasty of Erech, closely following the Great Deluge. He has since been shown to have been a real human being. Gilgamesh sought the secret of eternal life, driven to do so by the death of his friend Enkidu. He was told that he should find a man by the name of Utnapishtim, who had been granted eternal life by the gods. He found Utnapishtim, whom Gilgamesh successfully persuaded to tell his story. Utnapishtim stated that indeed he had been granted the secret of eternal life and was told by the gods, O man of Shurapak, son of Ubar-Tutu, possessions save thyself. Tear down thy house and build a ship. Let be well measured. He describes the ships he built, and from all principles of naval architecture, it was a tips it was a ship which could not be tipped over, square, probably meaning oblong. Sidebar, actually, it was round. 
and there's a really good researcher, historian, who took these tablets uh, about Gilgamesh and um, recreated, deciphered them, basically the recipe for a boat and uh, made one. And his name, I'm trying to remember now, and it's escaping me. I apologize. This is a total random sidebar in this podcast from the text that I'm reading. I will find it and mention it later. After he built it, he launched it no less than eight shakedown cruises. Each time he would bring it back, caulk it with bitumen, and check it out again. Finally, he had a ship shape, so he held a real Belshazzar's feast to celebrate its completion, with beer, wine, venison, and mutton served to all who came. Imagine this is in your neighborhood. Some of his neighbors must have thought he was a real nut. On the very next day, after the feast, he decided that it was time to load the ship and set it on the sea to cruise for survival. I then boarded the ship, the whole harvest of life I loaded. My family, my friends, the beast of the field, the cattle of the field, the craftsmen and tools of their trades. I made them all embark. I then embarked and closed the door. And as soon as the gleam of dawn shone in the sky, the skies darkened, black clouds gathered. Inside then, Adad thundered. Soon all light had turned to darkness. Brother could recognize brother no more. The animals of the skies can no longer see each other. Utnapishtim then described the onslaught of the storm, which generated sheer all-out terror in the ship. Following that, for six days and nights, wind and flood marched on. The holocaust wind overwhelmed the land. When the seventh day dawned, the ill wind was stilled. The oceans, the flood, which had waged war like an army, was ceased. I opened the window and beheld the devastation, and all of mankind was turned into mud. As high and as flat as the rooftops lay the swamp, and the thousands of dead, of man and beast and cattle, lay floating in the mire. He then proceeded to describe the bumping into the mountain, the releasing of the three birds, the bringing back of the thief, followed by disembarkation, the building of an altar, and more. Undoubtedly, the story is the primeval version of Noah's flood written thousands of years ago, covering many generations before. Ezra dictated his version to the five scribes in reconstructing Genesis 1, 2, and 3. One of the most important things about it is that we have a first-hand, on-the-spot report of the laying down of Estrada as we see exposed in the walls of the Grand Canyon, Monument Valley, and Canyon de Chez, with a vivid description of the terrorizing wind and inundation which are part of the event. Language scholars say that for anyone to write such a description had to be there and see it with their own eyes. More important also, the great archaeologist Leonard Woolley found Utnapishtim's rooftop high layer of mud in the 1920s. By then, clay, about nine feet thick, 
in the Tigris-Euphrates river regions. Further, beneath it, a civilization which was buried and totally different from any found above it. Of course, we have more than 8,000 survival legends in the Malay Peninsula region as uncovered by the great legendarian Fraser. We have other survival legends from the southwestern American Indians, from the Dean Bajan, the Navajo creation story by Paul G. Zolbrod, and we have this striking legend. At the end of the fourth night, as they were at last about to end their meeting, they all noticed something white to the east. They also saw it in the south. It appeared in the west too, and in the north it also appeared. It looked like an endless chain of white mountains. They saw it on all sides. It surrounded them and they noticed it was closing in on them rapidly. It was high and insurmountable wall of water. It was flowing in on them from all directions so that they could not escape neither to the east nor the west, neither to the south or to the north could they escape. So having nowhere else to go, they took flight into the air they went. Higher and higher they soared, it is said. From this description of flight and from the following parts of the legend, it is my interpretation that the entire legend is one from the cataclysm of 11,500 years ago. It would take years of work on my part to nail down the time of that one legend. I don't have years. Let's take the story which we know from two cataclysms ago. Historians tell us that for a 4,500 year period before 7,000 years ago, there's no written history from anywhere in the world. India, Greece, and Egypt follow this characteristic. It's interesting that 7,000 plus 4,500 equals 11,500 years ago, isn't it? In light of the priests of Egypt telling Salon of the great antediluvian Hellenic civilization, let's take a look at the Greek alphabet. It is written today as it has been written for all written Greek history, but the pronunciation is not the same. In the time of Euclid, the pronunciation was changed to the slang of their time, it is told. Let's compare the modern and the old. And here on page 105, is a list of the Greek alphabet and the pronunciations, which I won't go through because I've already been butchering names probably in my reading of this text. Uh, I'll just take a couple examples like Delta, Telta, Telta, Alpha, Alpaha, Apaaha. If you want to see it and sound it out for yourself, archive.org, page 105 of the Adam and Eve story. For now, I'll just continue to read the text. If you read the old pronunciations out loud, it sounds very much like Polynesian. Plausibly, it is a summation of prehistoric Mayan words, which we can translate into English. Here, then, is the Greek alphabet. Overwhelmingly break the oceans. They inundate the lands. Mother Earth receives the deep. Where obstructions are, shores form. Mighty winds rampage, where with oceans piling over oceans, they bury all that is living and moving. Where hills are, they vanish, buried, submerged with the earth of the motherland. Mountain peaks alone stand forth before the onslaught on our planet, which abates little by little until there comes the cold wind. 
The motherland is now at the bottom of the earth, an abyss, a vast reservoir of frozen mud. There comes out of volcanoes vapors pouring forth with swirling smoke and molten lava. It appears to tell it appears that it tells the story of the cataclysm which ended the Laurasian Ice Age, started the Old Stone Age, ended the Australian ice cap, and initiated the abrupt climatic change over the whole world as discovered in oceanography. Of course, it was a cataclysm through which Adam and Eve survived, ending a civilization in the Eastern Hemisphere. Traces, wisps of that civilization are found in the legends and record, and legend, <laughs> traces, wisps of that civilization are found in the legends recorded by the Hindu historian Valmiki and told by the Polynesian tribes such as the Maori. The story apparently was handed down verbally generation by generation through the 5,000-year period of no written history, and after Noah's, or Upnapishtim's, flood, when history started to be written, it became the basis for the Greek alphabet. Factual, legendary, or mythological, or maybe even historical or semi-historical, whichever it may be, the story is fascinating, isn't it? If you wish to pursue it further, read Don Antonio Bartres Lacaris, again, probably butchered that name, History of Central America, and James Churchward's The Lost Continent of Mew. Churchward makes many mistakes, but his works are interesting read. Or interesting reading. His unexacting treatment of the calendar gate of Tiwanaku makes one question his sometimes cursory methods. History before the cataclysm of 11,500 years ago comes to us in the form of legends. We can understand those legends and their origins far better in light of the history of cataclysms. The Greek alphabet has existed in two forms through all of Greek history. Where did it come from before that? It appears that it is a direct descendant of prehistoric Mayan or Naga. Perhaps the answer lies in the megalithic runes and glyphs ranging from the Mato Grosso to Deutschland, Finland, England, and Friesland. All we can say at this time is that these are prehistoric secrets of the Hellenists. Now we must leave the pleasures of enjoying our hypothesis and return to a more serious considerations. Let's discuss the most elusive piece of the puzzle, the part which has taken 20 years to derive and fit into the puzzle, the trigger of the cause of the cataclysm. My thoughts go back to George Cuvier's challenge to the world of science, which he wrote in 1812, discover the cause of these events. Dr. Hibben's contemporary adjunct to that challenge is really an inseparable part of it. Any good solution to a consuming mystery must answer all of the facts. As the years went by and we remained dissatisfied with our concepts concerning the trigger, we concentrated on that part of the puzzle. It has taken 20 years to find a satisfactory solution, one which answers all the facts. The fascinating work of the Swedish physicist Hans Alfen lighted the tortured path to the answer. In the 1950s, he discovered a kind of energy which nobody had even thought existed, which he labeled magnetohydrodynamic energy. Abbreviated, it's called MHD. Actually, it's a combination of magnetic, electric, and physical forces. It can be described best with what I call a kitchen example. 
Suppose you took a glass of cylinder containing mercury at room temperature, and everyone knows it's molten or liquid under these conditions. It's so dense that you can float a glass mirror on the top of it, so let's do just that and make some scratches on the mirror. If you shine a light down on the mirror, the light beam will reflect on the ceiling and show images of the scratches in the mirror on the ceiling. Now let's put an agitator, like a miniature version of a washing machine agitator, in the bottom of the cylinder of mercury, with a shaft or axle going through the bottom of the cylinder and fastened to that agitator. Let's put a handle on the end of the shaft sticking out of the bottom of the cylinder. We can twirl the agitator back and forth with the handle, slowly only because the mercury is so dense and heavy, and agitate the mercury in the glass cylinder. When we agitate the mercury in this fashion, we find that the slipperiness of the mercury atom to atom is so great that all the motion of the agitator is absorbed by the mercury before it reaches the top surface where the mirror is. The mirror won't budge. If we wind a wire around the glass cylinder and connect it to a battery, we will have an electromagnet. Following the same principles used in the doorbell of your home, there is an electrical current flowing around the cylinder and a magnetic field going through the cylinder end to end. Now we find that things have changed. When we rotate the agitator back and forth, the mercury acts as if it were a plastic or near solid. The mirror makes all of the moves that the agitator does, showing that the mercury has lost its internal slipperiness and is moving integrally as if it were almost solid. Alfin tried a refined version of this experiment in his laboratory, and this is how the phenomenon was discovered. It was first reasoned that tiny electric charges called eddy currents were being generated in the mercury which in turn were generating tiny local opposing magnetic fields, and this was causing the solidifying effect. He reasoned that if that were true, the larger the diameter he made the glass cylinder, the bigger the electrical current and the stronger the magnetic field would have to be to maintain the same physical force link between the agitator and the mirror. He built another agitator vessel with a larger diameter cylinder of mercury and found the reverse to be true. The larger the diameter of the glass cylinder, the less magnetic field strength and current electric current needed to maintain the physical force link between agitator and mirror. This seemingly broke all the rules of known physics and engineering. Hans Alfen realized that he had discovered the existence of a kind of energy traveling from the agitator to the mirror, which was previously undetected by any scientist. His rigorous mathematical work in expanding James Clerk Maxwell's three ingenious equations for expressing electromagnetic radiation, radio broadcasts to you, showed that there were electrical, magnetic, and physical force fields acting as a combined field between the agitator and the mirror. Alphen expanded his mathematical research to show that space is literally a sea of MHD energy, and that... As weak as the magnetic field of any blue-white star is, it is strong enough to support an internal MHD structure within the star. Alvin's work also applies to any planet with only one each north and south magnetic pole. I have built several Earth current recording stations and know from personal observation that Earth currents are strong enough to support our planet's inner MHD structure. Now we know that the molten layers inside the Earth act 
just like the cylinder of mercury in Alfred's experiment. As long as they are permeated with MHD energy, they act as if they are plastic or near solid. We also know that the shell of the Earth, which includes the oceans, the crust, and a teeny part of the mantle, is not dynamically balanced as it stands today. Rough computations show that there's a huge torque of, this number is ridiculously big, by the way, um, it's on page 112, it's 48.6 times a 10, but the 10 has 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 set of 3 zeros after it. Ton miles tending to rotate the shell about the Earth's interior. Greenland and Antarctica could move toward the equator in less than half a day with the shell free to make the shift. As long as the inner MHD energy structure remains strong enough to make the molten layers act as near solid, the shell will not shift its position above the Earth's interior. To be sure, the shell is shifting ever so gradually. The subject is covered excellently in the paper Latitude and Longitude and the Secular Motion of the Pole by Dr. Markowitz of the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. However, at the time of the cataclysm, the entire solar system passes through a magnetic null zone in the Milky Way galaxy. These null zones are sometimes popularly called reversal zones, and so they are, for the magnetic fields on either side of the galactic null zones lie in the opposite directions. Some physicists have found that we are heading into another null zone at an accelerating rate. It is a known fact of geophysics that the Earth's magnetic field strength now over 35% less than 300 years ago is decreasing faster and faster. We are indeed approaching a null zone. In any case, when going through our planet's inner MHD energy structure is diminished to the extent that the outer shallow molten layer, 60 miles thick, is allowed to act as a free liquid. No longer does it bind the shell of the Earth to its interior, which starts 120 miles deep, as the mirror was bound through to the Mercury, bound through the Mercury to the agitator by MHD energy in Hans Alphen's experiment. The shell of the Earth is freed to find a new dynamic balance about the Earth's interior. It shifts in the directions the torque imbalance of the shell dictates. It must go fine to its new balance. And the 60 mile deep, white hot molten layer beneath the outer solid shell lubricates the shift all the way. The trigger then is our planet's passage along with the entire solar system through a galactic scale magnetic null zone, diminishing the Earth's inner MHD energy to so low a level that the shallow molten layer, starting at 60 miles deep and extending to 120 miles deep, acts is allowed to act as a free liquid lubricating layer between the Earth's shell and solid interior. During each cataclysm, the shell finds its new dynamic balance, which is resolved when the shell has shifted to a position where the ice caps rotating equatorially and melting in the heat of the torrid zone. As they melt relatively fast and they usually total around 8 million cubic miles of ice, the oceans the world over after that the newfound water. New polar ice caps form on the areas moving to the polar regions. They will not be centered with our axis rotation, so a new growing imbalance is created to grow as the new ice caps grow to be resolved when the Earth, the entire solar system, 
passes through another galactic null zone 10,500 years later. Regarding the shallow molten layer, some geophysicists and seismologists challenged its existence. In 1924, the great seismologist Bino Gutenberg derived from his earthquake seismographic records that the layer must be there. Since then, Hawaiian seismologists have said, of course, it's the source of the molten, molten sub-volcano spew forth. And other seismologists say, well, it's there, but it's not molten. It's plastic or near solid. They're both right. It's molten and acts as a near solid because of the MHD content. Oceanography gives us the answer. IGY data shows that oceanic tides the world over depress the ocean floors three-tenths of the increase in depth of water between low and high tides. The molten layer has to be beneath the ocean floor for the floor to be pushed into the earth by just a few feet of water. <clears throat> as surely as there is life left in the universe, there is in our Milky Way galaxy. And as surely as there is life in our galaxy, our solar system will traverse another magnetic null zone in it. Indeed, many more. This brings us to the subject of the next cataclysm. As mentioned before, Hale's mathematical analysis sets the Wisconsin era at 14,705 years, 750 years ago. The last cataclysm, Noah or, or Utnapishtim's flood, would appear to be 6,993 years ago. Adam and Eve's cataclysm, the end of the Laurasian Ice Age, appears close to 11,543 years ago. Hale's mathematics show that the null zone versus time structure to be helicoid, and as the universe approaches its half-life point, cataclysms occur at an increasing frequency with shorter error time periods between them. After the universe has passed its halfway life, its half-life, cataclysms occur at a decreasing frequency, with its time periods between them increasing in a mirror image pattern of the first half-life of the universe. It appears that our universe's half-life was in the middle of the Sudan era, which means that we are in the first of the longer eras after the Sudan Basin, which embraced the half-life point. Our Arctic era mirrors the Hudson Bay era, which was of 7,000 years duration. We can now reconstruct the table on page 24 to show seven eras, four in the past, the present, and two in the future. Read the chart from the bottom up. This is on page 116, and I'll do my best to read it bottom to up and go across the chart. So it's areas at North Pole start in duration, North Pole eras, years to and from now, and then years. So Wisconsin, 43,793 years ago, 29,043 years ago, 14,750 years. Caspian Sea is next, 29,043 years ago, 18,543 years ago, 10,500. And I'll just let you find that chart on archive.org. Adam and Eve story, the history of cataclysms on page 116. For now, I'll just continue to read the text. Of course, there were many eras preceding the Wisconsin era, and there will be equal number following the unknown era. The unknown era is the one at the top of the chart. 
You can see that the dark period of no written history was the Sudan Basin era. Let's look at prehistory from a different viewpoint now, from the standards of our present civilization. We can see that it takes over 5,000 years just for man to stagger back to his feet through a stone age in forced ignorance. It takes him another 1,000 years to learn to travel intelligently, to begin to overcome superstitions, to establish worthwhile communications, to bury prudery enough to make any significant progress in medicine. The progress of civilization can be measured by the change in man's attitude towards women and ch childbirth. Read Devil's Drugs and Doctors by Howard W. Haggard, M.D. I can remember when the obstetricians was considered the lowest of the low in the medical profession. The male inferiority complex is manifested throughout history, starting with the Old Testament. In seven centuries of inquisitions, when 98% of the three million burned at the stake were women, through property rights, inheritance, and voting laws, through income inequalities, and through burgeoning rape worldwide. Has he outgrown it yet? If we look to our technical accomplishments, which have taken us over 6,900 years to achieve, think what we could do if we had 10,500 years. We would be in space as commonly as we walk around the block. Fossil fuels and nuclear energy would belong to the dead past. Man-made gravity, which we know how to accomplish right now, natural magnetism, which we also know how to use right now, would be the means for propulsion, power generation, and communications. As we would have learned the process of nature sufficiently to duplicate them in controlled fashions for our uses. It appears from the legends passed on from the Caspian Sea and Wisconsin eras that man did just that. With the 10,500 and 14,750 years eras having had, eras he had, Almiki writes of Vimans of the Brahma weapon and Indra's dart of celestial chariots and more. Legends of Mu and Atlantis of great technical achievements as well as moral perversions beyond comparison spring from the Caspian Sea era. A few legends carry over into the 7,000 year Hudson Bay era, showing some retention of knowledge through the cataclysm of 18,543 years ago. If we look to Nostradamus, we find that his predictions end about year 2000 AD. Whether we accept him or not, Edgar Cayce predicts a cataclysm about year 1999 AD. Hale's mathematics indicates one to be coming about year 2000 AD. As far as I'm concerned, I'm not satisfied with these figures. To me, the cataclysm is due sometime between two, 7 and 200 years from now. If I had my druthers, meaning if the funding were available, I would put the entire subject into an intensive, all-out applied mathematics program to determine as precisely as possible how much time we have before the next cataclysm, and undertake an intensive study to determine what we must do in the time we have left to prepare for it. Wouldn't you? And that's on the last page of that chapter. I told you it was a long one, so hopefully you hung in there with me. <clears throat> Maybe you took a break. It's fine. Do you want to uh, <clears throat> talk just a little bit about a few things? Hang in there with me. I'm going to be uh, uh, real quick, I promise. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about uh, Irving Finkel. Uh, Irving Finkel is the person who you want to look up 
especially has a great video on YouTube, The Ark Before Noah, that talks about um, the boat that he builds off the description of the cuneiform tablets that describe Gilgamesh's story in conversation with Utnapishtim. Fascinating. I also want to talk a little bit about, he says, he meeting Chan Thomas on this last page, the part that I just read, said he thinks there's between seven and 200 years from now. Well, from the from now would be from when he wrote and or published this book. This book was published in 1993. So take from that with what you will. And the final thought that I have in regards to this is uh, MHD, Hans Alphen. Uh, regardless of how much time we have or don't have, it occurs to me that if we're able to replicate the MHD in the crust of the earth while we go through the null zone and the reversal zone might not we'll be able to at least solidify part of a geographic region such that it might be saved. I am not near smart enough to figure that out in regards to what kind of energy you would need to generate, how you would generate it, and how you would get it down to that particular layer of the lava to have it be energized to be a solid or act as a solid, a plastic. I'm not sure if you would need something on each side of that geographic region of the globe to have some sort of permeating connection to both sides or if it just wouldn't work at all because if everything else is shifting as rapidly as he describes and and there's a section of a couple hundred square miles that isn't shifting is the rest of it just going to tear it apart beat it down pummel it So, things to consider. Maybe you find an edge area that is gonna be not swept across. Like, don't pick a landlocked area, pick a coastal area, or pick a part of a coastal area that is also high in elevation. So the inundation of water can be abated as well. Again, these are all just thought experiments. Uh, that's not the real point of this podcast, so I will stop my indulgencies. Uh, Thank you for joining me for this very, very long episode. And we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot, everybody.